Welcome to Orca Podcast, a podcast by the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, sharing how scientific facts drive real environmental change. I'm your host, Aurora Aparicio. If you have any questions about this episode or any comments in general, feel free to email us at inquiries at teamorca.org. For this episode, I had a conversation with Orca Research Associate April Richards about the environmental justice work that they're doing. As it turns out, we had a bit of technical difficulty, and so around the three-minute mark, you'll hear me repeating what April originally said, but don't worry, it'll switch back to the normal audio shortly thereafter. All right, coming at you live today from Dr. Edie Witter's office, actually. We got kicked out of our normal spot, so we're, uh, we have a new setup. I'm here in the studio with April Richards. She's a research associate here at ORCA. You joined last year, right? I started out as a fellow, just like you, last year, and came in in November, I think. Okay, so almost a year for you here. Yeah, just about. Happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You have a master's degree from the University of Michigan, where you studied environmental justice. Can you tell us what that is? It's not a new field. It's relatively new in just science, but it's been around for over 50 years. Yeah, so essentially the field of environmental justice aims to ensure all people have a clean environment to live in and access to natural resources. But unfortunately, certain communities are disproportionately exposed to environmental bads like toxins and pollutants, and then also experience a lack of access to environmental goods, which include things like water, resources, clean air, healthy foods. And so the environmental justice movement recognizes that discrimination. It's often on the basis of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, citizenship, and other factors that influence a community's likelihood to experience those injustices. And then you work to make that known to people to right those wrongs. Exactly, exactly. So you gave us a couple of examples in you know, your definition there of access to food, access to natural resources, different parks and stuff. Can you give us maybe a more specific example that you're super familiar with? Yeah, so I primarily work with issues of food justice, Mm -hmm. and that's what I did um, during my master's research. Specifically, I worked with the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Ottawa in their natural resource department in their Great Lakes Fisheries Program. So these are indigenous communities Uh, in Michigan. Yeah, so this is an Anishinaabe community in northern Michigan whom were forced to seed land a large portion of northern Michigan and the part of the Upper Peninsula in order to stop from being forced off the land, and in exchange, they maintain their rights to hunt and fish and gather in that region. And so the natural resource department that I worked with, they helped to guarantee their tribal citizens access to those natural resources. I mean, our fisheries program specifically worked with commercial fishers, who were actually part of the movement to reinstate the treaty rights of 
Ottawa and Ojibwe communities in this region to allow them to continue fishing. So you're basically saying that there were these treaties set in place to begin with and environmental justice had to come in after the fact because those treaties weren't being upheld. Yeah, so actually not long after those treaties were signed, those rights were stripped away and then fishers actually protested and did a lot of fishing that was considered illegal until they were able to regain those treaty rights. And so they're... April's stunt double here. Here's what she said. And so their natural resources department worked with fishers to maintain the tribe's access to those natural resources, to fish, and to make sure that their communities were being fed not just healthy foods, but culturally appropriate foods. Access to healthy foods and then access also to culturally appropriate foods. Is there anything else in that definition? Yeah, so food justice actually refers to the rights of communities to grow, sell, and eat healthy and culturally appropriate foods. And so what this means from those people that I spoke to at the LTBB Natural Resource Department and in that community, that meant that Not only did all of the fish that we caught while we were out doing fisheries research, it would be put in a freezer. Anyone in their community could come and pick up fish to cook at home. They had meal services that they provide to elders in their community where they get all of their elders together at their uh, city office to host weekly meals. They purchased and started their own farm Wow. So what it means for them is feeding their community and making sure that they are economically independent and able to provide for all of their citizens. So you're talking about the research you did while you were finishing up your master's degree as your master's mm-hmm. project, right? Now you're down in Fort Pierce at Orca working. What made this an ideal place for you to put, you know, what you studied in graduate school to work? Yeah, so I got very lucky in that ORCA has a One Health program Mm -hmm. that they started, I think, in 2017. Mm -hmm. So One Health is a global public health initiative aimed at connecting human, animal, and environmental health. Mm -hmm. And so this program was already in place, and I just happened to come here at a time when they began doing research on subsistence fishers, people who fish for food and to feed their families. Specifically, they were worried about exposure of these fishers to toxins from the algae blooms. And so part of it is that ORCA already has this really incredible initiative that really allowed me to step in and take everything that I learned throughout my graduate program and apply it directly to field research. The other thing that really made this line up is that we do see a lot of environmental injustices happening in Southern Florida, especially with increases in climate change. And what that means for harmful algae blooms is that they're happening more often. They're more intense and they're more toxic or they last longer Mm -hmm. and they're more toxic and so when I came into ORCA as an environmental fellow I was able to right off the bat get into the field and start talking to fishers about 
the environment that they are fishing in almost every day and then going through and collecting fish and testing them for those toxins to see if they are being exposed. Yeah, so, I mean, I want to get into that a little bit. So when you're out in the field, you're talking to these fishers, and then you're also coming back to the lab and doing other types of quantitative data, too. So let's just focus for right now on the surveys that you conduct and how you talk to fishers. What makes just talking to somebody and recording their answers and having a very structured way of engaging a conversation with them, what makes that a valid and reliable source of data collection? I am a large proponent for interdisciplinary research, and I strongly believe that if you are doing work to benefit a community, there's nothing you're going to be able to do better than actually talk to that community. I think that initially when ORCA began this project, we assumed that if there were toxins in the fish, the next step would be to identify new sources of healthy foods and making sure that people were not being exposed to toxins. But through actually talking to fishers, we interviewed, I think, 50 some fishers. um, And those 50 fishers shared fish with over 200 people. So this is a relatively large community depending on this food source in a small rural area in Florida. So instead of going ahead and saying, oh, there's toxins in these fish, we need to stop people from fishing, through actually having those conversations, we learned that fishers are, they hold really strongly onto these traditions of fish of fishing. Mm-hmm. It is a crucial food source, but also a crucial multi generational cultural and social activity. Fishing is more to them than just eating food. Yeah, so it's more than it's more than just subsistence. Yes, fishing. exactly, exactly. And so I had fishers directly tell me that even if the fish is, are toxic, they are still going to stay out and fish. They are still going to eat these fish. Wow. Uh, and I think that that is something that would be completely underestimated if considered at all without that qualitative data. So uh, did you ever ask why? Why they would still eat these fish? I mean, I understand maybe fishing still as sort of a sporter activity did you ever ask anybody why they would continue to eat it if they knew or they knew of a high risk of, of toxins in these fish? You know, I actually never directly asked why they yeah. would still eat fish, but... I figure in that moment it's yeah. kind of a powerful or shocking realization. And, and it is, and it is. And the thing is, I talk to a lot of the same fishers over and over again because... Mm-hmm. A lot of them fish seven days a week and eat fish seven days a week. And so having experienced that and gotten to know them over time, while it was still a little shocking to hear, while I was in the middle of that field experience, it, it honestly just made a lot of sense to me that this is a practice they were completely unwilling to let go of. Yeah. 
And, and that's something you would only get with that qualitative piece. Yeah, and, and not only just going out and conducting surveys, but sent, spending significant amounts of time immersed in that community. Right, a lot of these people become your friends. Yeah, well, I would have never even finished my data collection had it not been for many of these fishers who watched me fail day after day and sent me home with fish regardless. Oh, so you were fishing with them and you didn't catch anything. Yeah, so they taught me how to fish. They hooked me up with their their guy who supplies the, their fishing poles and their bait. And mm-hmm. and they spent a lot of time and effort helping me learn how to fish. And for some of them, it was they were going to make sure that I knew there was no toxins in these fish. <laughs> Other people, they wanted to know themselves. They were concerned about themselves. They were concerned about their families and their mm. communities. But That's regardless, really they, they were huge reason that we were actually able to complete this research. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of times scientists walk into a community, a researcher walks into a community and people get scared or they don't want to get give information. So it's kind of amazing and a sentiment to you, I'm sure, as a researcher in the field that you were able to break through that and become somebody that they could trust. Well, honestly, I think the only reason I was able to do that is because I was able to spend so much time out there and they watched me try and fail over and over again. And after a while of just having conversations with people and being kind of a known entity in the area, Mm -hmm. I think people were less afraid to have those conversations with me. I think that still there's an underlying fear that the information that we were gaining was going to lead to a moratorium on fishing in this region. Wow. That that was a considerable fear for people. They they didn't want me to collect this data and find toxins in these fish because they would have been cut off from like I said that crucial food source and cultural activity. Even if you said, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm sure people were like, oh, you still might. How did you ensure them that you wouldn't? Just spending time with them? I think a lot of it was just the sheer amount of time that I was out there. But I had a lot of good conversations with people about the mission of Orca and what we were doing out there. And our belief that people should be able to safely fish and swim and eat fish and just live on the water and that's that's our priority here we want to fix problems at the source not make up short-term solutions yeah we've been talking about it a little bit but you've been conducting research on fish food and environmental justice why are those three elements inseparable to you and how did you design a research project around that Honestly, this kind of started while I was in my master's program and I talked to my advisor and I said, you know what, I, I want to study environmental justice and fish. And he said, I don't know how, you, <laughs> how that's going to go together. <laughs> but throughout the time that I have been working on fish, it's just been really clear to me how connected fish are to human health. 
and it's primarily as a food source, but also because the same toxins that our fish are exposed to in the water, we are being exposed to as well. And that, I think, is really the one health aspect that I just didn't have the language for before. After you spent so much time learning how to fish by these generous people willing to give you lessons, you brought those fish back. What'd you do with them? The fish that I brought back, we went through an extensive process of dissecting fish, homogenizing them, basically blending up fish parts, and then extracting toxins from the tissues. And so we tested skins from the fish, fillets, livers, and also the roe, the eggs of the fish. And and we did this because we wanted to first be able to identify if fish were being impacted by microcystin, which is a liver-targeting toxin. And then we wanted to see whether or not people were being exposed to microcystin through fish, and that would be through their skin and their fillet, which they primarily eat. Um, But through our interviews, we also learned that many people in this community eat fish roe, Okay, um, and so that's so, something you wouldn't have known yeah, earlier. Yeah, which we absolutely would not have considered beforehand. Um, so we went ahead and started testing fish eggs, too. So we used ELISA microcystin kits, and those are enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays, and they are used to quantify microcystin within the tissue that we have extracted. Okay, so that's more of the in-lab quantitative Mm -hmm. portion of this research. Mm -hmm. I think it's so awesome that you were able to combine them both in clearly what it seems like a very effective way. Well, Um, and then we were able to take those estimates, which were actually very species-specific. We saw a lot of variation by species and create estimates for exposure levels based on our interviews that told us what type of fish people ate, how much, how how frequent, what portion sizes, and we were able to create full estimates of microcystin exposure. You were looking for these toxins, so were you shocked when you found whatever you found? I don't think I was very shocked to find microcystin within the fish that we tested, And partially that's because we had already identified it in the water. I think I was surprised to see how it varied by species. Yeah. Um, Do you have any clue as to why? Well, I think it's largely dependent on diet. So depending on what fish eat, it probably highly influences their uh, accumulation. But no one really knows what that accumulation looks like. We are still very early on in researching microcystin. How can the results of your research be applied in this community or in other communities that are facing toxic algal blooms? I think for starters, this research identifies a majorly overlooked source of exposure our health standards don't consider at all really 
fish consumption as a source of exposure. I also believe that it is really highlighting really the right of people to be able to fish and eat these fish without it compromising their health, or at least that's what it does for me. And also I think it highlights some additional inequalities, especially when it comes to healthcare access. These communities are particularly vulnerable because they don't have access to healthcare. Our healthcare systems need to be able to respond to the environmental crises that our communities are experiencing. Yeah. Is there anything else about your research or EJ as a whole that you want to clarify or emphasize to our listeners today? So I just want to identify the Environmental Fellows Program founded by Dr. Dorsita Taylor at the University of Michigan. This program is what brought me to ORCA and, and, and also Aurora, <laughs> uh, and they are doing a lot of work to combat injustices, especially when it comes to placing qualified people who have been disadvantaged in a lot of ways in the uh, traditional education system into those powerful positions making decisions about environmental funding and research that's happening now. They're all graduate students from across the country. They go through a training uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then in partnership with the Environmental Grant Makers Association, who provides so much money to different nonprofits and grassroots initiatives and all this kind of stuff, they send these fellows out to different philanthropies, different research organizations like ORCA. We're basically there all summer to promote the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion within grant making and science. It's a really immersive way to sort of spread and expand the diversity, equity, and inclusion that is so needed in our society today. And in our field. And in, yeah, and, and in science in general, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here and for talking with us about this. I know this is a project that you've worked on for almost a year, over a year now. I'm really excited about the science you're doing. Well, thanks for having me. Enjoy all your editing. Thank you. Thank you.